We're going to be reading two passages out loud together from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 and from Romans chapter 8. Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And now Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, this is your word, and it speaks of such big, powerful, wonderful, necessary things. And so Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to grasp your truth this morning. Don't let us, Lord, tune it out or distract it away or Lord, but I pray that your truth would, would penetrate us, would grip us, and that we would be changed as we once more gaze at your glory in your word. Lord, equip us for the life that you have ahead for each of us this morning through your word. Don't let us miss what you've said, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. April the 6th, 2018. We all remember what happened that day, just 20 minutes south of town. 
16 people died because one truck driver didn't stop at the intersection. That number, 16, is shocking. It has a deserved place in the news headlines. 16 lives full of promise ended. 16 people never coming back. I'll admit, though, that there's a second number that for many months I didn't pay very much attention to. It's the number 13. 13 people were injured in that crash. And for many months, that number was, was, was a positive number to me. It's 13 people who didn't die. But all that changed back in January as I was reading through some of the documents from the court case as it was unfolding in Melfort. And this document described each of those 13 people and the injuries they sustained, the debilitating challenges that many of them are still facing. And I was, just, I was moved to tears again and again and again. I was heartbroken reading through these descriptions of these young men, many of whom are suffering in profound and painful ways and how for some of them, it might not ever get better. The reason that I talk about this is because we're gonna be talking about suffering this morning, suffering and healing. And I bring up the, the Broncos crash to remind us that these are not theories we're trifling with this morning. This is real life. And real life is hard. Many of you know some of my experiences with suffering over my life. Much of it in connection to my mom, whom I stood beside almost exactly 10 years ago as she died after five years of battling cancer. I also know that so many of you in this room this morning know what suffering is like. You know all about pain. You know all about disease. You know all about bodies that don't work the way that they're supposed to. Each one of us has been touched by suffering in some form or another this morning. And if you haven't, you will. Suffering causes us to ask big questions. Like, if God is good, why do things like this happen? Can't God stop healthy cells from mutating into cancer cells? And if he can, then why doesn't he? Can't God stop semi-trucks from barreling through intersections? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And then there's the added questions surrounding God's power to heal. Didn't Jesus heal a lot of people when he was here on earth? And if he's the same today, if he's alive, then why are so many people sick? Why are so many Christians sick? Does God want all of his children to be healthy or not? 
These are the kinds of questions that we're going to do our best at answering today. Now, please understand just a few words here of, of setting the scope. Suffering is such a broad topic. And, and we're not, there's no way we're going to be able to address every angle today. Today, we're going to be mostly speaking about physical suffering, the kind that impacts our bodies. Although what we're going to talk about is going to apply to many other kinds of suffering as well, the suffering of a loss and so on. One more word here. Please don't think that if you are not suffering today, then you don't need to pay attention to this morning's sermon. Don't think that this morning's sermon is just for people who are suffering. I can say with absolute certainty, we have said this already, that each of you is going to suffer in some form or another in your life, in your own body. And the time to build the foundation is before the storm comes. The time to patch the roof is when it's not leaking outside. And far too many Christians wait too late to develop a biblical understanding of suffering. And it can be hard to develop a biblical understanding of anything when you are already suffering. It's possible, but the time to build a biblical understanding of suffering is today, whether or not you're suffering this morning. We all need this. And so, Each of us needs to lean in this morning as we explore what the big story of the Bible, which is what we've been doing all along each week for these past several weeks. What does the big story of the Bible, which we spent several months exploring, what does it say about these topics that impact our real life? And today it's suffering and healing. And I think we're going to find out that this is a topic that we can't really understand apart from the big story of the Bible. So let's go back to where we need to begin. Creation. When God first created the world, no suffering at all. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was no suffering. God created things good, and they worked the way they were supposed to. And by the way, side note, this is why evolution doesn't fit with the Bible, right? Evolution says that death and suffering is what created us. And the Bible says the exact opposite that God created us, things were very good, and suffering and death did not enter the picture until after Adam and Eve bit the fruit. But there we go. We're there already, right? We're at the fall. How long did it last where there was no suffering and no pain and no sickness because Adam and Eve did bite the fruit? And in response, we know that God cursed the earth. Romans 8.20 in our passage today that we looked at says that Romans 8:20 says for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it and that him who subjected it is God God cursed the universe the creation with futility verse 21 talks about the bondage to corruption these are different ways of describing what we saw in Genesis 3 and That was September 30th. If some of you want to go back to the website to refresh on that this week, talked about the fall on September 30th. God cursed the whole earth with futility as a way to show Adam and Eve the horror and the reality of their own sin. 
That's what's going on in the curse, this bondage to decay, this corruption that we see, the, the death and the pain and the suffering around us. God is taking the ugliness within our own hearts and displaying it around us in living, breathing, painful reality so that we can actually see it for what it is. See, you might think God is overreacting. All they did was bite a fruit and he brought the whole creation crashing down around them. But that's the whole point. We underreact to our sin. We don't think sin is a big deal. And we think that God really owes us a pain-free life. In spite of everything we've done, we feel like God owes us a good life. And the whole point of suffering and the whole point of the curse is to show us that the tiniest little sin is a, a huge deal because God is a huge deal. And so we also saw back on September 30th that suffering and pain, they're actually acts of God's grace. Because when we suffer, he's giving us a chance to recognize our own sin and to repent of it before it's too late. God speaks to us in our suffering and calls us to wake up and seek his face before judgment day comes. That's how suffering came into the world. And that's what suffering means. Suffering is connected to sin. Now, as we move through the story of the Bible, we shouldn't be surprised to see that when God steps in to save his people from their sin, when God steps in to redeem his people, to be close to them, very often that involves a removal of their suffering. Suffering is connected to sin. As God redeems his people, suffering gets peeled away as a result of that. So that's very clear in God's covenant with Israel. And we've talked many times in this series about God's covenant with Israel and, and how it was full of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If Israel sinned against God, they would suffer the curse. They would suffer pain and futility in, in greater ways. God would turn up the dial on the curse, you could say. But if God, if Israel obeyed God, if Israel did what God wanted them to do and, and stayed faithful in covenant with him, it's like he would turn down the dial on the curse and he would dial it back and he would take away their suffering and he would bless them. So it's very obvious in so many places. Just one example, Deuteronomy 7.15. He promised them that if they obeyed him, he would take sickness and disease away from them completely. So that was part of the promise in that covenant. As they stayed faithful to God and their sins were forgiven, suffering would be peeled back. And this, by the way, is a part of Jabez's now famous prayer in 1 Chronicles 4.10, that God would keep him from harm and pain. He's asking God to dial back the curse just like he promised to do. So as Israel was to faithfully follow the Lord, it's like he was promising to make their land just a little bit more like the Garden of Eden, where there was no suffering, no curse, no pain. And we read, though, because we know things go on from there, that things got bad. We know that the exile happened. And, and so as we get to the book of Isaiah, as we read some of the promises that God made to his people about coming and saving them for good, coming and saving his people permanently, finally, he talks about dialing back the curse once and for all. 
So listen to this, for example, from Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 6. Isaiah 35, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And there's, there's layers going on here because on one hand, it's talking about the spiritual blindness that Israel had. But the promise is there that when God comes to save, the curse will be erased and he will heal and restore things to the way that they're supposed to be. And these promises that God makes through Isaiah, they connect up and they flow into God's big promise. God's great big promise to fix everything that's broken and to make a whole new creation. So Isaiah 65 verse 17 to 19 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. Do you see what God's promising? Taking away the curse, taking away the things that make us sad and make us cry and making a whole new creation. And this is what God's people were waiting for as they waited in the, the darkness of exile. This is what they were waiting for. A coming age of salvation where suffering and the curse would be just a memory and there would be a whole new creation. This is what God's people were waiting for. And I hope you know what the next step in the story is. It's Jesus. Jesus, the healer. Jesus, the one who could remove suffering and reverse the curse with just a touch or sometimes even just a word. See, because that's what Jesus was doing. Do you see how the, the healing ministry of Jesus makes so much sense when we understand the big story of the Bible? As Jesus healed people, he was proving that he was God. That just like Isaiah prophesied, God had come to save his people. And the proof of that was lame men walking and blind men seeing. Jesus was declaring also that the age to come, this coming age of salvation, that the age to come had begun. And this is where our passage from Luke chapter 7 fits in, the passage we read earlier. So the backstory here, which we, we haven't read, but the backstory is that Jesus is going into a town and he encounters a funeral procession and it's this widow and her only son has just died and Jesus raises this man, this young man from the dead. And the people say in, in Luke 7, 16, they say, God has visited his people. And they were exactly right. God had visited his people. And so John's disciples go back and they tell, they tell John what they saw. And that's where John's question comes from. John the Baptist, he says, tell, go, at, go ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you, are you the promised Messiah or not? And so what does Jesus say in Luke 7, 22? Go and tell John what you've seen 
and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Right? Just like Isaiah prophesied. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, yes, he's the one they were expecting. The miracles, the healings of Jesus proved that he was the promised one. He was the Messiah. And the age to come had already begun. Isaiah's prophecies being fulfilled right before their very eyes. So then why does Jesus say this at the end? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How could you be offended by Jesus doing all this healing? Well, easy. You're John the Baptist. Do you remember where John the Baptist was at this moment? Herod's prison. You know, John the Baptist's ministry, it might have only been six weeks long. It, we, we don't know for sure, but it wasn't a long ministry. And then he's arrested. And he's sitting in Herod's prison hearing about all this stuff that Jesus is doing. How does that work? Because you know one of other, another one of Isaiah's prophecies about what the Messiah would do? You know what the Messiah was also supposed to do? Isaiah 61.1. He was supposed to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's what he's supposed to do. Set prisoners free. So why is he up there raising some people from the dead and John is sitting there in prison waiting to have his head chopped off? That's where this question comes from. How does this work? How is this even possible that I'm here and you're up there? John could have been really offended by Jesus if he wanted to be. See, John, like Jesus' disciples, like pretty much everyone at that time, they expected that these promises that God had made through Isaiah, that they were going to be fulfilled all at once. That the kingdom of God was going to arrive all at once. The Messiah was here. The age to come is going to begin all at once. This present age, which is full of suffering and pain, this present age is just going to be done with. Because the age to come is here, and it's all going to happen all at once. We know that it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen all at once. I've used the phrase already but not yet a whole lot in this series because that's a concept we need to understand to know this part in the story. The kingdom of God is here and so are the kingdoms of man. The age to come has begun and yet this present age of suffering and pain is also still here. And these two things run alongside of each other for a season. See, they thought the kingdom of God was going to come and everything else was going to disappear. They did not expect that God's promises, God's age, God's kingdom was going to run alongside of this present age for a time. And these two ages coexisting with each other is why you get situations like Jesus raising one man from the dead 
and John sitting in prison. It's why you get situations like John chapter 5, where Jesus walked into the pool of Bethesda, and it says there that there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And what does Jesus do? He picks out one guy, heals him, and leaves. Leaves a multitude of sick people behind him. He just healed one. Or think about the lame beggar that Peter and John healed in Acts chapter 3. And it says there in Acts 3, 2, that this man had been taken daily and laid at the entrance to the temple for years. Which means Jesus walked past this guy over and over again and didn't heal him. Jesus did not resurrect everybody. Jesus did not heal everybody. In fact, as far as we can tell, there's only three people that Jesus raised from the dead. Enough to prove that he could do it, but he didn't heal everybody. He didn't raise everybody from the dead. And by the way, that's true of the apostles. The apostles didn't heal everybody. That's why Paul told Timothy, he said, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Well, why don't you just heal him, Paul? Thought you could heal everybody. Well, apparently that wasn't the case because Timothy got sick a lot and Paul encouraged him to use wine as medicine. Or think about 2 Timothy 4.20, where Paul says, kind of by the way, he says, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. This guy was sick and he couldn't come with Paul, so he had to leave him behind. Healing was not for everybody. So here's an illustration to try to help us wrap our heads around what's going on here. In Regina, there's this really nice restaurant that, that Amy and I used to go to on our anniversary and overlooks Wascana Lake, and it's, it's really fancy schmancy, the kind of place you only go once a year. And while we'd go and we'd order our food, and while we would be waiting for the meal, the server would come out and they would give us a little taste of something that the chef had been working on. And it was usually just delicious. You know, it's the kind of thing where it would take them like a paragraph to describe what it is because it's just this like super fancy foodie thing. And it would be absolutely amazing and really, really small. And it was like so frustrating, right? Because you're waiting for this meal and you're hungry and you taste this amazing, delicious thing and then that's it. And it could be frustrating because it left you hungry for more. You wanted the whole meal right then and there. And that was the whole point, right? The appetizer told you, the chef is really good. This meal is gonna be really amazing. And it made you long for that meal with intensity. And that's what the healing ministry of Jesus and the apostles was like. When Jesus walked into the pool of Bethesda and healed that one guy, he proved, I'm the Messiah. I am going to turn back the curse. Here's what it looks like. When he raised those three people from the dead, he was giving us a preview of the resurrection that's going to come at the end of the age. He showed us what it looks like. But we know that that age that's coming and is here, it's not here in its fullness yet. 
This present age full of pain and suffering is still sticking around a while. The curse has not been erased just yet. We're still waiting for all of the promises to be fulfilled. And in this time of already but not yet, some people get healed and some people don't. That young man gets raised from the dead and John the Baptist gets his head chopped off as his disciples bury his headless body in tears, saying, I thought the Messiah had come. He did. But the promises aren't all fulfilled just quite yet. Jesus and the apostles gave us enough of a taste to know that the meal is going to be good, but we still wait for it with growling stomachs. And that, by the way, is where you and I are still in the story. We're in this time of already but not yet. We're still waiting for the meal to arrive. Now here's a question. As you and I wait for the meal to still arrive, does God still give us a taste from time to time? I think he does. Can God still heal people? Of course. Of course. Does God still heal people? Why would we ever say no to that question? I have no doubt that he still does. But what we see right here in the pages of Holy Scripture is that healing is not for everyone. Healing was not for Timothy. Healing was not for Trophimus. And these guys were super close to the Apostle Paul. Being raised from the dead, which was a promise right alongside a healing, wasn't for John the Baptist. So I'm submitting to you this morning, based on scripture, that we should not expect God to heal everybody. And in fact, what I want to submit to you today, based on holy scripture, is that God actually tells us that we should expect to suffer as we wait for that new creation to come. And that's where our passage from Romans 8 comes in this morning, the passage that we read earlier. This is a passage that prepares us to suffer in our bodies. What does verse 17 say? We will be glorified with him provided what? That we suffer with him. Everyone wants to be glorified with Jesus. Very few of us want to suffer with him. But that's the way that God has decided for it to be. Verse 23 reminds us that we continue to suffer along with the rest of this world. Verse 23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, our bodies being redeemed and made new. It's something we're still waiting for. And he goes on to say, it's hope and we don't see it yet, but we hope for it. This is telling us about as clearly as possible that we should expect to suffer in our bodies here in this age. Because we don't see the hope that we've been promised. It's still coming. 
We've been promised something better than temporary healing. We've been promised new bodies, bodies completely redeemed, but we're still waiting for that to happen. And until it happens, we groan. But we can't miss what this passage tells us, which is that our groaning is hopeful groaning. It is expectant groaning. Did you catch verse 22? What verse 22 says? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in what? The pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly in that same pain. So we are groaning along with creation in the pains of childbirth as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. See, the groaning that creation experiences, the groaning that we experience, Paul says it's the groaning of a woman in labor. It's the groaning that knows that there's new life coming. See, before Jesus, our groaning, the groaning of suffering was a hopeless groaning. Before Jesus, our groaning had nothing to look forward to but judgment. But Jesus' death and resurrection and promised return has transformed our groaning. He hasn't taken it away. He has not taken away our suffering, but he's transformed it to hopeful, new life groaning. John Piper gave the illustration that's so potent here of of the difference between a palliative ward and a maternity ward. In the palliative ward, people groan in pain because they're waiting to die. In the maternity ward, people groan in pain because new life is coming. And some of you, like me, have spent time in both of those wards in real life. I've stood beside my mom holding her hand in the palliative ward as she groaned in pain awaiting her death. And I've stood beside my wife holding her hand as she groaned in pain each push bringing us closer to meeting one of our children, both women in incredible pain, and yet their experiences could not be more different. And because Jesus has saved us, we're in the maternity ward. Our suffering is the suffering that is coming before new life. And that means that even my mom's palliative ward ward groaning was really maternity ward groaning. She was in the maternity ward even though she was in the palliative ward because she knew Jesus and she's with him right now. And there's a new body that's coming for her in the resurrection. And friends, that's the difference that Jesus makes for you and for me when we know him. So no, we shouldn't expect God to take away all the suffering out of our life here and now. That's that's coming. God is going to heal everybody who believes in him in the age to come. Here and now, we should expect to suffer in our bodies. But Jesus has transformed our experience of suffering. He's taken us out of the palliative ward. He's put us in the maternity ward. Instead of suffering just being a painful reminder of coming judgment, suffering becomes a painful reminder of the life that is coming, the resurrection hope that's in front of each of us. Oh, and there's more than that. There's even more than this because God doesn't let suffering be wasted in our life. God God uses suffering in our life to remind us of what's in store and to do so much good work in our our life. 
Just listen to some of these words from the New Testament that speak about what God does in us through suffering. Romans 5, 3 to 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you rejoice in your suffering? We should. That's what it says. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our bodies are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, when God allows suffering into our lives, he does so on purpose for a very, very good reason. He's doing something in us that he couldn't do any other way. It's so easy to forget this, right? When we suffer, when something hurts, what, what, what do we tend to pray for right away? We ask God to take it away. Fix it, God. Heal it. Take it away. But what if God has something better in mind? What if God wants to produce some endurance and character and hope in you? What if God wants to prepare more eternal glory for you? What if God wants you to become more steadfast and complete and lacking in nothing? Do you want that for yourself? Be careful how you answer, because you know the only way that God can do that in you is by suffering. Are you willing for that? God is. God is willing to make us like his son, Jesus no matter what, even and often through suffering. So I'm thankful that God does not say yes to every prayer for healing. Because if he did, we would miss out on so much. He so often uses pain and suffering and sickness to work in our life to do things that he couldn't do any other way. Now, please understand what I'm saying here. I am not saying that we should never ask God to heal. I'm not saying we should never ask God to remove suffering. But I'm saying we need to have the whole picture in our minds. And when we ask him that, we ask like Jesus saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because we understand that God may have higher plans and he may be planning to use this, this sickness, this suffering for our good and for his glory. So what, let's, let's pray for God to remove suffering if that's his will, for God to heal, if that's how he wants to glorify himself. But let's also pray for God to help us rejoice in our trials. 
Let's pray for God to give us strength in our inner man, for God's power to be made perfect in our weakness, for God's grace to be sufficient for us, for our faith to be strong. Let's pray for our perspective to be his. Let's pray for our relationship with him to grow. Right? Philippians 3.10 talks about knowing Jesus as we share his sufferings. As we suffer, let's ask God to draw us closer to Jesus and to lean on him more and more. You hear what I'm saying here? Let's, as we suffer, be active sufferers. We don't just passively sit there and say, well, either God takes it away or I just grin and bear it. No, we suffer with eyes wide open to what God might be doing in us. And we try to participate with him in all of the ways that his sovereign love is at work in our lives, working all things for good, building our character, strengthening us, fixing our hope on him and making us more and more like him. Oh, there's so much more that we could say about this. We're going to draw things to a close here this morning, but I just want you to know when this service is over, I'm just going to hang around the front here. If you've got questions, if you have something that you would like someone to pray for, Please come talk to me. I would love to do that with you. But before we do that, we're going to sing one more song together. We're going to sing, It is well with my soul. And please hear this as we draw this to a close. Everything that we've said this morning about God using suffering for good, everything we've said about new bodies, new creation, all of this, all of this depends on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, I, don't, I never know who's going to be here in the morning, and I never want to assume if you're here this morning and you don't know that Jesus died for you, you've got to get that settled before you leave. Because otherwise, apart from Jesus, there is no hope in suffering. It is the groaning of the palliative word. There's only judgment ahead. It is only because... The man, Jesus Christ, loved us and gave himself for us. And he took our judgment and he gave us eternal life. And suffering is hopeful and it's worth something and it is doing something and it's not a waste. So look to Jesus this morning, each and every one of us. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray you'd find us looking to you now. Maybe for some of us the first time. But Lord, I pray for all of us that we, we would be there. Jesus, it's only because of your death that we've been set free from despair and hopelessness and that we have eternal life in your name. God, thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I thank you that this eternal life gives us a sure and a steady hope in our suffering. I thank you, God, that you have mercy on your children and that you do not let us suffer forever but that eternal life is coming. May we grab onto that hope this morning, God. May it truly be well with our souls.